Hello and welcome to Lost in the Story. My name is Wesley Marshall. My guest graduated from CSUN with a master's in creative writing. Following several years as an English composition instructor and social media manager, she entered the video game industry as a localization copy editor for Nexion, working on several mobile titles including MapleStory M and Durango. Now she's the player support writer over at Riot Games, helping players with articles as she channels an early 90s Prima game guide. In her free time, she's working on a novella and is an editor and social media contributor for a literary magazine. Please welcome Kat Cherish. Hello. Hi, Kat. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Good. So I have a question for you, which is, what to you makes a good story? Oh, gosh. You really got to start with the with the complex meaning of life questions, which is fine. I'm ready to be tested. I mean, you have uh, a degree in this. I do. It's like, how do I condense uh, years of school and work into, into a single thought? I would say what makes a good story to me um, generally is... It's going to sound so cheesy, but something that does elicit an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's beyond feeling. I think that media at its best is anything that makes someone in the world feel less alone. So mm-hmm. a great story is something that connects to someone at their most vulnerable or their most um, sort of raw and sensitive and allows you to feel feelings that are maybe difficult to process. So I think that's what makes a good story. So going off of that then, what what are maybe two like recent examples that you can think of of something that did that for you and something that didn't do that for you so maybe that people could be like oh i see what she's talking about okay i definitely have two examples and i so i've been replaying all the resident evil games and by replaying i mean i've been watching friends and family replay them uh, which counts as the same thing uh (laughs) so um, it's funny the trajectory of those games because we've been playing them from the beginning. So we played the original sort of PC port of the original PlayStation versions and then, you know, the remakes that have come out subsequently. Mm-hmm. And I think that those games inherently run that gambit of a good story versus one that is maybe they lost the thread a little bit. So for me, Resident Evil 6 completely lost the thread. It, it didn't elicit the emotions I was sort of promised by the predecessors in the franchise. It was mostly action-oriented. There, the characters were doing things and acting in ways that I was like, what is going on? I'm so confused. This is not what was promised to me. I don't feel anything. Um, and then on the flip side, the most recent game, which was Resident Evil 7, um, that game is terrifying. And <laughs> the protagonist emotes in such a way you know, it's not just being trapped in a haunted house. There is a fear, uh, uh, almost a, a period piece element, a locale element to what would it be like if you were trapped in a zombie infested house in the bayou, essentially. And the character reacts in ways that were so relatable because um, he exclaims throughout the game's uh, story, like, what is going on? Who put these puzzles here? What the heck is this? And I was like, that's how I feel. That's what I'm feeling. I'm also confused and would ask these questions. Um, And so it gave a little bit of a, I think that makes it more terrifying because if you can relate to the character that you're like, well, I would also be afraid in this situation. And I found that very successful. So I was having this conversation uh, with another guest uh, earlier, which was, um, do you, what do you takes, a front seat is it is it character or is it story i think it depends 
Um, I would never say that one is more important than the other. I can definitely say which one I prefer, which is generally stronger character pieces, mm -hmm. um, mostly because I do like the sensation that stories provide uh, camaraderie uh, within the world that they create. But I think also that it really depends on what, what the point is. What was the author's intent? Are they trying to build this great world and are the characters just in it and sort of uh, avatars for the reader or are we here because we're listening to a particular person's story so as long as it's done well I am totally I think both can be um, amazingly effective but in terms of my own personal preference I definitely lean towards character focused pieces yeah I mean it, we were we were talking about that like there for me I, I sort of I fall in the same thing where it's like I feel I like it when it's a character driven story and not a story driving a character yeah. Uh, because I, I think I, I think you can have a not-so-good story, but if the characters are compelling and you care about them, you will forgive, like, a sort of flimsy story. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think set-piece building is a very useful skill. I tend to read mostly spec fiction, so, like, horror and science fiction and fantasy. And I think in those settings, you know, obviously the world and the plot is, is more important than I think other storytelling mediums mm -hmm. perhaps just because like you have to not only convince me that these characters are worth reading but also that this world is like plausible within the fictional rules that you've set up yeah. so I think that like some stories definitely require both but if the characters are rock solid that's what you're going to remember at the end of the day and sort of everything else is a bonus of the, the cool landscape or you know how awesome was the way they took down the bad guy and I feel like it's stereotypical to, to use this as an example, but like I think the uh, in the last maybe like 20 years, a show that's really done good with both is Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, 100%. Upon recently rewatching, that is a masterpiece of television. And I think that's that's sort of the point, right? Like, well, it's you, you'll most people will definitely have a preference one way or the other. Um, I do think that when when both can be done, and I think both should be strived for, it ends mm. up becoming even greater than the sum of its parts. Like it's not just the characters, it's not just the plot or the setting. It's all it's all good. Then it's uh, that's what makes it classic, I think. So, g going off of that, like you've now been working as as a writer all over the place. Um, <laughs> In the places that you've worked or have tried to get into, are, are you seeing more of a push towards one or the other? Uh, or does it vary from place to place, do you think? I think it does vary. I think that Nexon was really interesting because a lot of the properties that I got to work with happened to be like IP-related properties. Mm -hmm. um, so Nexon uh, publishes a lot of the mobile games that are tied to like film releases and stuff like that. Um, and so I think those have very clear guidelines that don't necessarily live a, leave a lot of room for creative exploration of the medium. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think just in games in general and just like the way that, you know, certain types of literature are headed as well, I think that characters are finding themselves at the forefront. Um, I think it, you, if you look at the boom of like YA literature, for example, a lot of those stories have phenomenal settings and you know well-executed plots, but the reason that they are as successful as they are is because they've created characters that re that are relatable, probably in a person's most vulnerable sort of general age range. YA no longer means YA, and I could go on a whole 
<laughs> completely separate tangent about how I think that uh, YA and NA, which is new adult and adult speculative fiction, is all muddied. Uh, but for the most part, YA is sort of targeting that vulnerable teenage to early young adult span mm -hmm. of time. And there's a lot of feelings going on. So if you can craft a character that appeals to somebody in that state, that's a lifelong sort of role model or figure that you've crafted. I, because I, I remember like, there was there was very much a stigma when you said young adult. You're like, oh, that's 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 for you know, girls is what I hear hear a lot from mm -hmm. back then. But like you, those books are, I, I would almost describe them as more pulpy in the sense that people made them all the time and people and they made tons of them and people read them voraciously. I think that was definitely the case. I would say prior to. Uh, the Hunger Games did a lot. Whether or not you particularly care for that series, I think mm -hmm. it shifted uh, a subconscious in the way that we view YA literature. Because if you look at the story of the Hunger Games, forget where it was classified on a bookshelf. That's technically a grim, dark, post-apocalyptic or mid-apocalyptic story, which if you were to pitch those words to me, I'd be like, oh, adult science fiction, mm -hmm. maybe even hard science fiction. But in reality, this is why a pop teen book in the way that, like you said, many people perceive it. And I think that has caused a shift to where those lines are getting more and more blurred. What makes YA versus what makes, you know, more, again, adult science fiction or fantasy no longer is the same. Like they can often share so many similarities. It's the reason why. Take the Golden Compass, for example, that series of books, mm. um, His Dark Materials, which is the series yeah, yeah. name. Those books are found in the children's section and the adult fantasy section. Yeah. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. And it's because a lot of what defines some of the early parts of the book and the first book and the ones that define the latter books are completely disparate and they were really difficult to categorize. So people were like, eh, we'll put them in both and people will figure it out as they go. Yeah, because I, I think people would have described... Um... Uh, young adult as being like PG-13, you know, still being edgy, but not crossing over to R-rated uh, depictions of things. I would have agreed with that had it not been for a recent uh, book series by an author named Sarah J. Mass. Uh, I, like to I like to use these books as an example um, for this exact discussion, actually, because I'm going to take her books, uh, specifically the of Court of Thorns and Roses series, and the wildly successful uh, Name of the Wind, which is by Patrick Rothfuss. Mm -hmm. um, the characters, the protagonists of both series are roughly about the, around the same age. Uh, depending on what part of A Name of the Wind, uh, the protagonist of Court of Thorns and Roses is older. The sexual depictions in, the, in Sarah J. Mass's books are distinctly more explicit. Uh, and I'm astonished that she got away with it, but she totally did. Um, the violence is more pronounced. And so you read those books and you're like, wow, this feels distinctly adult. And then you read Name of the Wind, which aside from its length, I believe it's about 900 pages. The content is more tame in comparison. There is still violence. There is still, you know, sexual depictions, but the protagonist is still a teen for the most part of, for the larger majority of the book. And so you got to ask, well, why? Hmm. Arguably in terms of what should, you know, whether the rating of it, the content of it, if this was a movie, which one would be, you know, more explicit, A Court of Thorns and Roses should be adult fantasy, but it is classified as YA, which 
enters into this whole really fascinating realm of YA no longer having anything actually to do with the age of the content, but more the writing style and purpose of the book itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. You were you were saying earlier, um, talking about uh, where literature and media are heading. Having worked in it and also just been a fan growing up, do you think we are heading in a good direction right now, or are we sort of still floundering? I think that definitely depends on the media itself. I think in terms of television, specifically cartoons, we're heading in a really good direction. Um, like you'd mentioned already, um, Avatar The Last Airbender set set a stage that took a little bit of time for the rest of sort of that genre to catch up to. But you have mm -hmm. shows like Adventure Time and Steven Universe, which recently just completed. You have all the She-Ra, absolutely. Uh, Owl House on Disney. I think, uh, and then some of the predecessors like um, Gravity Falls. Shows of that genre are exploring long form storytelling with complex themes in ways that were hitherto unheard of prior to the last you know couple decades honestly yeah um there are some notable examples from earlier time periods um i was actually talking to somebody about hey arnold earlier which mm -hmm. is a, which is a show that i was talking about that last wave. night <laughs> it's so good it's a modern masterpiece and i encourage everyone to go give it a rewatch because it's on streaming somewhere but i do think that a lot of the i don't want to say advanced but a lot of the more complicated storytelling techniques that have actually been present in other sort of animated forms like anime and stuff like that. I think, you know, the Western media of that genre is starting to catch up in the sense where they're like, oh, shoot, we can talk about, you know, how to deal with divorce or how to deal with, you know, complicated emotions when you're a teen or how to deal with the loss of a loved one in ways that aren't sort of going around the question and being clever about it. We can yeah. do it directly. And, with, and we can and... also tell long stories. Yeah, and without spoiling uh, uh, She-Ra, that is the yes. best build-up to a relationship I have ever watched in a cartoon. I agree. I think it's... Um, and what's great about and this is why I think we're heading in a good direction, one of the reasons that She-Ra and its themes are so well executed, I attribute a large part of that to the showrunner Noelle Stevenson's mm -hmm. experiences as... I'm, I'm trying really desperately not to spoil things, but... I mean, everyone knows the show is very gay. Yeah, the show's hella gay. Um, I think that her own experiences with her own sexuality are so present in the show, and they feel organic and natural because she lived them. Mm -hmm. This isn't somebody being like, oh, shoot, how do I write a gay character? She's like, no, I'm, I'm gay. I need to write about it. Yeah. Um, similarly to Owl House, um, there was uh... a big... Her wife, her wife works on that show. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Noelle Stevenson's wife works on that show. And I think it's fascinating because the showrunner um, is bi. And one of the characters in the show is also bi. And I remember reading that Alex Hirsch, who did Gravity Falls, mm -hmm. had written in excitement that Disney had allowed, you know, this very clear representation to be shown on their channel um, because, it, you know, it had previously been unheard of. Again, with shows like Adventure Time, that's like seven seasons of buildup and they managed to slide it into essentially the last five to 10. Yeah. Uh, but it was again, in ways that were subtler because they needed to be, I think the same sort of thing happened to legend of Korra, which is avatar's successor. Mm -hmm. And that they were show also, I know they were, they were hamstrung by Nickelodeon because yeah. they wanted to show more, but they couldn't. That's I think the main problem. And I think that's why Alex Hirsch vocalized such excitement because 
restraining creative sort of visionaries in that way is only going to be detrimental to the story. Yeah. It's the same reason why, oh, I don't know, some authors of note mm. saying that a character is of an LGBTQ plus representation, but long after the fact that her books came out and long after the fact where it made any sense and also there's no evidence and or proof of that, so it feels a bit like shoehorning J.K. Rowling. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, big cough. But I do think that, like, that's the difference, right? Looking at the way that J.K. Rowling handled Dumbledore's sexuality versus the way that Noelle Stevenson has handled sexuality in her show, one of those is more honest and open and sincere than the other. And I think that that speaks to the quality of the representation at hand. Yeah, and I, also to just, like, the show, it, I, I only can, you know, it's it's hard to compare like that show to like an avatar because that's an unfair uh, expectation. But what I uh, think that it shares in common is uh, pacing there. Yes. It, it, it never, it never feels rushed. It never feels like you're on a filler episode. Everything feels like it matters. Um, yes, absolutely. I, th I think differently to avatar, I think Shira explored um, world building through character as opposed to having the uh, the world um, encompass around the character. Like, you learned about things through Adora or through Glimmer or through Bo. Um, and it, it was, and it was, it felt organic. Yes, absolutely. I also think that, like, Shira's a really interesting example because it's not an original story. No. It's based off of a world and an IP that's existed for since I don't want to say 40 years, but it's been quite a quite a bit yeah. of time. Um, and so a lot of that was also like a deconstruction of world building. Um, a lot of people, you know, again, much, much like young adult literature, cartoons of the demographic that theoretically these shows are directed at, that's no longer actually the target audience. They're meant to be accessible to everyone. And a lot of their beats or their jokes or their um, sort of narrative choices are distinctly directed at an older audience. Um, playing upon the nostalgia of the people watching it. And so I think that a lot of the cool things that Noel Stevenson did with that story was, hey, you remember this character from when you like played with these toys? Uh, let's twist that on its head and let's make it something more relatable and more sincere. Mm -hmm. And then she, I know I know she's, uh, I mean, there's no release date, but she's doing an adaptation for Lumberjanes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love that comic. It's a great comic. And then uh, uh, just on a similar thing before I change the subject is another one of those I felt... Uh, works for everybody it was my favorite movie that came out that year was uh spider-man into the spider-verse oh my god another great one another like every great. time i watch that movie i cry <laughs> again that's what happens when you have passionate creative showrunners taking a property and and doing everything correctly mm -hmm. i think i think you know obviously again Spider-Man is uh, Into the Spider-Verse is so successful because you know who Peter Parker is, you know mm -hmm. who Spider-Man is, but you might not necessarily know who Miles Morales is, and you might not necessarily know, hey, did you actually know that there's like 10 other spider folks throughout history that might be worth your attention or might be worth referencing? Mm -hmm. And I think, gosh, that must have been a treat for people who had, you know, maybe read Spider-Man Noir or... Uh, just grown up with the various iterations of Peter Parker. Even the films, we've had three different Peters. Mm -hmm. I'm ever so slightly sick of Peter Parker, but I do think that like they are all three distinct characters, and that's only in a cinematic universe, let alone you know 
the decades of comic history that you can pull from yeah, and play yeah. with. Uh, so then slightly shifting, what do you think is still a, a big glaring thing in writers' rooms, in literature, things that need to be fixed post-haste? <laughs> I firmly, firmly believe in lifting up the voices of the own voices of uh, if you're writing about a minority, if you're writing about a different demographic than you are a part of, if you are writing these characters and these themes with no interaction with anybody who's lived them, mm -hmm. you are running the risk of coming across as inauthentic, if not inaccurate. And so I think that a lot of studios and companies are starting to see the value in diversity, are starting to see the value in, you know, maybe a story without a you know 20 something very handsome white male protagonist that's blonde and has a sword like <laughs> i think that there is value in those stories i grew up with a lot of those stories but to also widen that playing field and make it as inclusive as possible results in some of the great stories we're getting now and i do think that while the audience is asking for more i do not know if the people creating the content are as inclusive all the time as they probably should be so i think that giving other writers, giving other people the chance to talk and tell their stories and, you know, giving those stories the same funding and big billion dollar budgets that, you know, other stories are getting is probably a good place to start. Yeah. And, and, and I, I have found myself going, you know, when I see someone is, you know, writing a story about a group that they're, you know, if it's a white guy writing about uh, African-Americans or, you know, uh, a white person writing about LGBTQ uh, plus people and they are not I tend to see if they associate with those people do they do they you know source everything and what I've found like uh, an example that I can think of off the top of my head uh, a comic book writer uh, Brian Michael Bendis created Miles Morales uh, he created this character recently in the comics named uh, Naomi uh, and he he's writing it but he's co-writing it with a guy named david f walker who mm -hmm. is a friend of his for many many years uh african-american guy uh he he's behind uh, a comic book series from image called uh, bitter root which i'm excited for it's getting adapted which is like 1920s uh harlem uh people who fight supernatural monsters uh very steampunky looking uh, oh, awesome. and every time that character shows up in another book that he's writing he's he always has him come on and write with him because his only his experience is you know he, he has a lot of adopted kids he has two uh kids adopted who are african-american but just because he has that doesn't mean he knows how to write to them he might know them personally but having a second voice that's like hey man that doesn't happen is so <laughs> valuable Absolutely. I think that one of the most valuable things to any writer aspiring or established or otherwise, there's a whole group of beta readers called sensitivity readers and editors that honestly should be advocated for more. Um, the only reason I know about it is because my Twitter is just essentially following writers that I like and thus mm -hmm. I learned about a lot of really cool resources. Um, but sensitivity readers are essentially if you are writing and you include a character that you do not, you know, align with um, in your everyday life, have them read your work, pay them appropriately for their services, of course. Yeah. And they can, you know, give you that that lived experience and that lived feedback to be like, hey, you're doing a disservice here. 
with the way that you've crafted this character or the way that you're using them, you're, you know, maybe giving into some harmful stereotypes or even some microaggressions. And so I think that I don't understand why writing rooms don't have a more diverse pool of people in the room. Uh, yeah. But I hope that even if they aren't there in the initial pitch, that's something that definitely needs to change. But I think even if they aren't, uh, bringing them in to give a, sort of a final say, uh, it would be a great step forward. I, I'm, you know, I'm seeing this in in, sh- in show more and more shows recently. But like, uh, did you watch? Did you watch Watchmen? Oh, I sure did. Do you know? It the was st- so good. Yeah, yeah, some of the best TV I've ever seen. Do you, Do you know the story behind behind the the writers' room for that? I do not. So Damon Lindelof was doing this talk right after the show aired, and he said the the way they got their room together was you know they did their general meetings with writers. And he would pitch them the story, and he he was doing a few things. One thing was if he pitched it, and they were like, "Oh my god, that's so amazing!" He's like, "Okay, not going to have you." If uh, they were like, "Well, okay, but what about this?" If they questioned it and and were trying to, if there was things they could find that they could try to fix, if they were not like just like, "Oh my god, it's Damon Lindelof, and it's writing a, a big property," uh, so that's how he sort of initially got them. And then in terms of the makeup of it, he had like a core group of people who knew the comic book and all the media around it very, very well. Then he had another sort of group of people who maybe had read it once or maybe had seen the movie, had ancillary knowledge, you know, basic knowledge that's sort of out there in the pop culture. And then he had a group of people who knew nothing about it, who were just really good writers. And that's how that room was so balanced. And, like, my parents could watch that show having seen the movie a long time ago and then, like, me showing them sort of, like, uh, stuff about the comic and still being able to go, oh, I follow this story. It's a very poignant and good story. I, I get it. And not have it be, like, you know, very uh, deep cuts. And yeah. I just think that's so interesting. I think that's awesome. I also think that Watchmen, one of the reasons it, it is so successful is that sort of layered approach that you just described of, like, the show pulls on a lot of the, from the original comic. It is It is distinctly paying a kind of homage that was the other but thing, i also this quickly to add is that damon lindelof said the one thing he did say he goes this guy's and he holds up the comic because this is the bible this stuff happened uh so we're gonna follow it but also we're gonna tell a, a modern story i do think as somebody who has very complicated feelings about alan moore as a person mm-hmm. um i i i find uh Watchmen was both the the best homage and also the biggest middle finger to Alan Moore's worst instincts. And I think that's why I loved it as much as I did, because it encapsulated that strange dichotomy of the fact that this is a very complicated author who has a lot of questionable tendencies in his work. I'm currently reading through uh, From Hell, which highlights a lot of those maybe worser tendencies. Uh, And I think that that's what made Watchmen successful is acknowledging the past without erasing it, but also moving mm-hmm. forward from it. I think what Watch the Watchmen comic and the show did very well is that they were commenting on a big uh, divide in the country at the time. Uh, yes. You know, threat threat of nuclear war, Russia, all that stuff was very, very prevalent when he was writing that book. And it was very, you know it was very like jarring to read that because you're like, oh, this is the stuff that we say on the inside. Uh, and then the TV show brought it back to, ended up being super, super prescient. Um, and 
did the same thing. And for me, watching that show made me go, oh, I like the graphic novel uh, a lot better now because I have that as the follow-up to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a natural progression that may, that enriches the source material in a lot of ways, which is the best sort of sequel you can hope for or adaptation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, sort of landing the plane, what, what got you into wanting to write? What was the thing that made you go, I need to put my voice and contribution into the writing field? Well, it's a funny story because I took a really roundabout path back to writing. Um, you can ask my ma, uh, and she shall tell you that I have been sort of going down that writerly path since I was like three years old. It has been a solace to me in some really you know, troubling points in my life. It's just been such a constant, and I had dreamed of being a writer. I think it's in like my yearbook or something i won an award in like seventh grade that's like you're going to be a writer essentially most likely to write and mm -hmm. it's funny because you reach a point in adulthood i.e college and the end of high school where people start to tell you that you can't do the things that you want to do yep. uh for reasons that are really arbitrary like well writers don't make money so you can't be a writer and that's not a real career and no one makes it and what makes you think you can um, and unfortunately, or fortunately for me, I guess, depending on how you look at it, I heeded that frankly terrible advice um, and was and gave up for a long time. Um, I actually pursued archaeology, uh, so I got to have a nice fun time digging up dead people for a little bit. Um, and while that was great, um, and it is both as fun and not as fun as you'd think it is, um, I ended up feeling very dissatisfied because it didn't feel correct. Um, you know, I was still reading avidly, still thinking of stories, still dwelling on them, but not, you know, really paying them any mind. Um, I once had somebody tell me that I couldn't be a writer because they were a writer. Uh, <laughs> and so I wasn't allowed to be, it was, it was very strange. Um, you know, and that same person questioned whether or not I'd ever make something of myself. And it's that sort of vibe, right? Of, well, you can't do the things that your heart wants to do, especially when, well, that's going to cost money and what about school and what about like financial stability and eventually i remember i was hanging out with one of my best friends and had a full breakdown about it i was like i'm so unhappy i don't know what to do all i want to do is read and write all day and he looked me dead in the eyes and was like then why don't you just do that and i was and it was the first time you know, other than my parents who have always been quite supportive it was the first time that somebody really looked at what I wanted and what I did and saw value in it and was like, hey, you have permission. He gave me the permission I couldn't give myself to pursue what I wanted to pursue. And so I did a hard pivot um, midway through getting my bachelor's and I ended up switching to honors in English just so I could read a bit more um, and, and dove head first back into it. And it felt in a lot of ways like coming home. And so I was like, okay, these stories have been literally simmering and stewing in my brain and my mind has wanted to write for years and hasn't. And so I just took off like a bullet train through grad school and into my now career of, I can't stop. I've wasted so much time. I now have to play catch up. Uh, and so I've been kind of a nonstop workhorse about it since then. And I, and I don't regret that switch despite how hard it's been. So, so what are you doing now? What does your, your job entail in terms of writing? So my job currently is um, I am a player support writer and I was actually 
the only player support writer for quite some time. Um, now I have a new a new assistant friend to help me, um, who nice. I trust deeply. Uh, we worked at Nexon together, and he is an incomparable, exceptional writer. And so I was like, please come write with me. And he's like, okay. <laughs> uh, so he has been a, an amazing asset. But I, uh, when Riot comes out with a game, uh, that game needs support. And so I took it upon myself to restructure sort of the tonal guide of our player support articles. Um, and so I really wanted them to feel the way I felt reading game guides when I was like 10. Like mm. I had Prima guides for games I didn't own, for systems I didn't own. Uh, and I just enjoyed reading because they, they weren't just guides to the game. I remember them having this quippy, uh, directional sort of writing where they'd make little jokes, they'd tease the protagonist of the game they were writing for. Just clearly somebody who loved whatever game they were working on, inserting themselves just ever so slightly. And, you know, I love sort of Riot's properties. And so I felt like, wow, this is such a, a, a fun IP, such a fun property. Why shouldn't player support sound that way? Mm -hmm. And so I get to write um, just a lot of fun copy um, and a lot of fun guides to help players sort of, as a player. Are they, are they walkthroughs? Is that what it is? Or is it more like, hey, this is how you navigate this menu? Both. Um, we don't really have walkthroughs, but we have um, a lot of events. Um, League of Legends, for example, has a ton of events. Um, and so I'm responsible for writing essentially like, hey, here's what this event do. Uh, <laughs> here's what you can buy and here's what you can do if you have problem. Um, and it's funny because that's definitely not what I saw myself doing upon graduation per se. Um, obviously prior to this at Nexon, um, I was a localization copy editor, which entailed, again, depending on what type of game it was, if it was an IP game, we couldn't change a whole lot. But if it was not an IP game, and it was sort of, you know, we're publishing this game, we would get a lot of freedom to just be like, hey, yo, rewrite this however you want, as long as you don't, you know, change the story, obviously. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge amount of creative freedom to just essentially determine and define the voice of characters in this game. And trying my damnedest to make sure they stayed true to the you know developer's vision it's it's so it's so interesting because it's, it's it's a very similar path for uh i have a, a friend who is a writer director actor uh who does a lot of uh, adaptations for anime and oh, awesome and that's like you know his thing is he always like okay i have to make sure each character sounds distinct uh i have to make sure that i people know when who is talking and it doesn't just sound like the same person for each voice and it's a lot of like you know similar with the japanese stuff is like you there's a certain you have certain liberties you can and can't take you have to make sure it's the same story you have to make sure you follow some other notes uh but still make it unique he told me uh the story i won't say what, what show it is but there was a a show and there was like a joke in the episode that was making fun of a character for being fat and he was like no not no uh it's saying like saying like you should lose some weight or something, and so he changed it uh, to make it more of like a like a funny jab as opposed to like calling her out for being fat. And I just found that like he's like oh, and there's certain things you can get away with. Like the, my my favorite one, he he writes. Um, uh, he just got off of it, but he was for the last like three years he was writing JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. 
Oh, excellent. And there's uh, Matt Mercer, who plays uh, one of the uh, JoJo characters, the, one of the leads in, I think, the th third part. I can't remember. Um, he also plays McCree in Overwatch. And so he wrote a line into one of the episodes, which was, it's high noon. That's great. That's excellent. One, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is phenomenal. Um, yeah, that happens actually quite frequently. I do remember um, there was a game that had there was a joke apparently um because the original source text was in korean that made a reference to a really popular sort of like detective korean drama that was on at the time just very well beloved mm -hmm. uh but obviously it wouldn't for one it wouldn't translate appropriately into the show wasn't out here so i was like well what do i do um and it was talking about you know a betrayal a, a you know a, a broken bond of trust between brothers and i was like oh this is absolutely going to become a star wars reference um <laughs> and so i did put it in there and i did get a message actually from my now current co-worker uh who was like hey did you just turn this into freaking star wars and i was like yes i did thanks for noticing so <laughs> there it is fun what you can sort of get away with and again both both nexon and my current job as a player support writer not necessarily what I imagined myself doing with a writing degree, which shows how broad and accessible um, sort of creative fields are if you know where to look. Um, I think that for me, my, you know, my speculative fiction that I write on my own, my narrative writing that I do on my own, that's like my passion project and I absolutely mm -hmm. would love to do something successful with it. Gosh, I hope. Um, but that's also like, not my day job writing novels is currently not my day job uh it might be in the future but it isn't now and yet writing remains a part of my job and has for the last several years and so i think that like that has a, that's kept my mind sharper i think it's kept my writing muscle well oiled machine well oiled um which was a stagnation i had felt for a long time so i mm -hmm. think that there are opportunities if you're willing to take them and if you're willing to work hard for them doing yeah what you like in new ways it, you know the it was a thing you know it was a thing that I, I i considered for a long time but there was um when they were making their original face for um announcements for marvel and uh the actor who who's going to be playing shang chi talked about how he ended up getting an audition in the first place which was he tweeted out saying hey marvel uh are we doing something together come on and essentially they hired they hired him and then he went back on Twitter and sort of responded to his tweet and it says, and he said, thanks for getting back to me. Uh, I guess you have to shoot your shot. And so uh, I sort of took that mindset re like re somewhat recently. Uh, and I ended up uh, sending a uh, blind email to, um, are you familiar with hyper RPG? That does sound quite familiar actually. Um, a lot of people who were at geek and sundry went over and started their own uh, thing called hyper RPG. Uh, oh yeah. I definitely uh, know about this. So, so I sent a blind email because they were joking on stream, like, uh, you know, we're a skeleton crew, we need help. And so I sent an email out saying, hey, I realize how hard it is to work a skeleton crew uh, on a Twitch network. I've done it before. If you ever need any help, here's my resume. So I send them my resume. Don't think about it. A month later, I get an email from their CEO, and she says, hey, um, do you know how to operate camera? And I'm like, y yes, kind of. And she's like, well, don't worry, we'll teach. And so I went there for one test uh, episode to help them with camera. And then I came back the following week and they're like, yeah, we want to bring you on. Uh, it's going to be part time. We'll pay you and we'll teach you. And I was like, oh, shit. And so I was there 
from like November to March 13th and then COVID happened. Uh, but it, it, it's that thing of like, you know, it wasn't exactly where I was aiming for, like, you know, voice acting and that sort of creative stuff is what I'm, what I want to do. And, but it was, it was a good place to be because you were surrounded by those creatives. You were staying sharp. You were staying up to date on everything. And then luckily, luckily or unluckily during this COVID has given me time to go and focus on voiceover, focus on things I really want to do um, because we've had time to stop and, and really decide what we want from, you know, our lives. Oh, absolutely. The, the introspection time period that quarantine has sort of forced, but also allowed for, I think has been really valuable to, I think a lot of people, I find that like reflecting at the end of the day, reducing to its most basic part, what you value and what you want is, is sort of the name of the game. Cause at the end of the day, all I want to do is write words and mm -hmm. I want to write them in the games industry. And that's what I've gotten to do for the last two years. Um, prior to that, all I wanted to do was write for myself. And that's essentially what I took grad school to be. And it's what I now take into my free time. And even before that, I think that there's always a single like note that rings throughout the development of your career, the development of your goals. And as long as you keep that note in mind and you keep it at the forefront, whatever you're doing that surrounds that can be arbitrary. It can be whatever, you know, it happens to be at the time or whatever opportunities present themselves. But for me, it's writing. And so I get to write and that to me feels like, okay, success. Yeah. Um, so sort of to wrap it up then, is there anything that you're working on uh, personally that you, you think you're going to be launching anytime soon? Because you, you know, in, in the write-up that I got from you, you say you're working on a novella. Can you tell me about that? Oh, I sure can. Um, so I um, started a novella as my culminating experience project for my master's degree that I sort of let sleep for two years uh, out of sight and out of mind. But um, I lovingly refer to it as the gay robot story. Um, there is indeed at least one gay robot, if not more, but um, it is a sci-fi novella um, that's essentially about AI and what it means to be human, but also like, what is the difference between being trained as a person or being, you know, shaped as a person by your upbringing or by your education or by, you know, life circumstances? How is that any different than being programmed like a machine? And so um, it is the relationship of two people, um, Alexa, Alexis and uh, Verit. Her name is Verit. Uh, one of them is not a human being <laughs> and the other probably is. Um, and just their growing affection for one another, but also what that means. And is it essentially or inherently different because one of them is a robot? Wow. And is, uh, are, are you going to be putting that out on your own through like something? <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm an old school girl. So I, once it is done, I will try to go the official, official route of finding an agent who's mad enough to take a bet on me uh, and see where it goes. It is called Gallant, by the way. So if you ever see that, you know, be there sure to buy it. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, is there anything that you want to plug or anything that you can say of stuff you're working on for people to look out for that you are allowed to say? <laughs> um, I would absolutely like to plug Kind Writers. Um, it is a literary magazine that I have just started helping out with. 
um, as both a sort of standard editor as well as a social media contributor. Um, I help them tweet, um, but it is made up of some of my most favorite people from um, CSUN's graduate program. Um, a lot of them are educators um, who focus on, you know, inclusive and diverse education and pedagogy. And um, they put out their first, you know, in print volume edition um, this last year, and now they're working on volume two, and I'm excited to help them with that. So um, obviously it's all, you know, small homegrown. So um, any buzz or contributions that people can make, um, there's currently a contest going on right now called the Kind Writers Contest. Um, we do ask for a $10 reading fee, but there's also a donate what you can, because we do try to be accessible for everyone to stay true to our message of like kindness in the writing community. Um, we accept poetry, we accept, you know, prose, art, comics. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just very proud of them. Uh, and where can people find you if they want to follow your adventures, as it were? Um, if by follow my adventures, you mean um, an annoying amount of both cat and ghost Pokemon memes, um, <laughs> I can be found on Twitter at Cherish Writing. That's C-H-E-R-E-S-H, writing, because my life is words. And yeah, there's a lot of me. It's just a lot of memes, a lot of memes and resources. Sounds about right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, thank you for joining me, Kat, and uh, have a good day, people. Thank you so much. This has been Lost in the Story with your host, Wesley Marshall. Music composed by Chase Pathia, who you can follow on Twitter and TikTok at Chase Pathia and on Instagram at GamerComposer. His website is ChasePathia.com. Cover art for this podcast provided by Marcy Edwards, who you can follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Mary Hellscream. Thank you for listening. See you next time.